G'day and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV. Well, at a time when civilizational decline gives us little to laugh about, along comes an unexpected and unintentional gag. Have a listen to this. It's Marsha Langton explaining one of the reasons why we should vote yes in the Voice to Parliament referendum next month. The arguments of Dutton, Price, Mundine and others in the No campaign are specious and increasingly absurd. Forget what she's saying for a second and marvel at how similar she sounds to this bloke. I'm a Republican too. This is a... I'm a paradox, viewers. I am a Republican uh, in many ways. You know, I hold the Republican sympathies of a, uh, a socialist elder statesman. And my that was, of course, the brilliant Barry Humphreys creation, Les Patterson, appearing on The Michael Parkinson Show in 1981. Before I go any further, I need to thank Daily Telegraph columnist Tim Blair, Australia's funniest writer, for being the first to, first to notice this similarity. It's a bit uncanny, but it's not just in style. Just as Patterson liked to be referred to as Dr. Sir Les Patterson, Langton is, in the title of this YouTube video at least, referred to by her full title, Distinguished Professor Marsha Langton AO. And there's a political crossover too. In 1999, the majority of Australian voters voted against the question of our nation becoming a republic. The Republican movement lost that referendum because the then Prime Minister John Howard confused the yes voters into believing that there was a better model. So Marsha and Les are both Republicans. Well, you can bet that if he was still alive today, Sir Les would be traversing the nation in his private jet rubbing shoulders with the intellectual socialist doyens of the Yes campaign and lending his considerable cultural weight to the cause. What is noticeable now is the thin line between satire and reality. My late friend, cartoonist Bill Leake, explained this just a few days before he died in 2017 talking about how easy it was for his predecessor, Bill Mitchell, to draw cartoons. In order for Bill Mitchell to come up with a cartoon, all he had to do was take a serious political issue, exaggerate it to the point of absurdity, and draw whatever he saw when he got there. <laughs> but I can't do that, because these, the ideas our politicians have these days are utterly ridiculous to start with. <laughs> and if you're starting at the point of absurdity, where are you supposed to go from there? Well, you don't go anywhere. The writers at the Babylon Bee in the United States, the funniest conservative account on Instagram, get a lot of jokes out of simply describing reality. This one, Donald Trump's trial for election interference set to begin in time to interfere with election is just as funny as Sir Les Patterson, but doesn't include even the slightest element of satire. It simply identifies an ironic reality. 
But irony isn't taught in school anymore, so many young people struggle to understand it or find it funny. Instead, kids are taught about Shakespeare being a sexist old white man, that Western civilization is oppressively colonial, and the planet is dying. All very enlightening stuff. There used to be an old joke that a lefty is a conservative who has just been arrested, and a conservative is a lefty who's just been mugged. It was amusing because it assumed, perhaps hopefully, that there are times when conservatives realise that not all people who get banged up have committed a crime, and that leftists might sometimes be forced to admit that some crooks are just bad people. But we are so divided these days, we are simply uneven, uh, unable to even make these concessions. Victorian Premier Dan Andrews was thoroughly mugged by reality on the weekend. It wasn't for the first time, of course, but against mounting evidence that his style of government isn't working, his response remained resolutely in denial of the facts. I'm referring, of course, to the alleged murder of one person and serious injuring of five others by a driver on Burke Street in the Melbourne CBD on Friday night. Andrew's response to the fatal incident was, by any rational measure, bizarre. Quote, from an infrastructure point of view, I don't believe, and it's the judgment of experts in this field, that there's anything more that can be done to avoid, for instance, an incident like this. Of course, a person has lost their life here and the coroner will have a look at this. If there's anything more we can do that comes through that coronial process, of course, we will stand ready to do that. We owe it to the family of that 76-year-old man who lost his life and those who are injured and those who are caught up in this, we owe it to all of them to try and learn from this incident and any other incident. Well, there were two possible causes of this kind. There are two possible causes of this kind of increasingly common crime. The first is terrorism. The media were conspicuously quick to rule that out. Here, for example, is The Guardian paraphrasing a police superintendent that there was nothing to suggest that the incident was leaked, linked to terrorism. And here is SBS reaching the same conclusion. Terror links ruled out in deadly Melbourne crash. The thing is that in both of these news reports, there are no specific quotes from cops saying terrorism had been ruled out. It looks as if the journalists simply extrapolated that from other things the cops said about the alleged perpetrator's behaviour and that there was no ongoing threat. This is, of course, what the media does every time there is an incident like this. We now know that on this occasion, terrorism is unlikely. But the public didn't know that at the time, and the media's reflexive response is decreasingly convincing. When the alleged perpetrator's name was finally released, Zane Khan, many Australians would have thought, hmm, Khan, huh? 
Perhaps he's a member of a religion whose most violent and angry adherents wish us harm and have done so in the past. Now, common decency and the Christian values upon which our civilization are based implore me to point out the bleeding obvious here that not all people called Khan are bad, nor even that all people of a certain religion of peace are bad. In fact, in our current dispiritingly secular and nihilistic society, there are good reasons to appreciate the arrival of people of any religion, because such people are by nature de devoted to a higher moral order, which is preferable to, say, spending your life being devoted to a footy club or hitching your emotions to the shallow sentiments of someone like Miley Cyrus, as millions of sad young girls seem to do these days. But I digress. For now, as I said, it looks almost certain that mental illness is a significant factor in this incident. Channel 7 was able to track down the alleged perpetrator's mother, who said, quote, It's very sad. He's sick. If some family who have kids that are sick, they will understand what mental illness is, unquote. This is heartbreaking for any mother and family to have to deal with. But it's not just other families who know what this is like. Government agencies, departments and politicians know it too. Australia is facing a mental health crisis right now, and I don't just mean the annual Are You OK? campaign, which attracts most of the media and attention. The crisis is in serious mental health. The standard number of beds for seriously mentally ill people in OECD countries is 70 per 100,000. In Australia, we have 36 per 100,000, half the required rate. The problem is, is, comes from the reluctance of authorities to perform what is called assertive or involuntary administration of medications for conditions such as schizophrenia. Legislation authorising this is in place in every state, so it varies a bit, but the application of it is becoming increasingly unfashionable. In some jurisdictions, for example, authorities need to apply to a magistrate for permission to involuntarily treat a seriously ill mental patient. I'm talking about people who, who can and want to cause serious harm to others. According to one person I spoke to, one person inside the medical pro profession, legal aid lawyers, often idealistic and straight out of law school, are then able to persuade the magistrate that human rights are at stake here and that the evil medical authorities have no mandate to medicate anyone against their will. In the case of schizophrenia, a monthly injection is enough to keep the patient's demons at bay and for heinous crimes to be prevented. That same person in the medical industry told me that incidents like the one in Melbourne on Friday night are prevented every day, every day, by police and doctors, sometimes acting 
with the authority to administer involuntarily the required medication. All that brings me back to Dan Andrews' statement on Friday night. Let's look at it again. From an infrastructure point of view, I don't believe, and it's the judgment of experts in this field, that there's anything more that can be done to avoid, for instance, an incident like this. Well, Andrew knows there is more that can be done, but it just doesn't suit his style. So he isolates the government's range of potential responses to infrastructure and pretends there is nothing else he can do. He's been here before, you know. In January 2017, James Gargasoulis drove a car into pedestrians on a road not far from where the attack on Friday night happened and killed six people and seriously injured 27 others. The infrastructure response that Andrews made back then consisted of $50 million worth of concrete bollards. Fat lot of good they were. Appearing before a magistrate three months later, Gargasoulis claimed to have been having a mental health breakdown at the time. A jury was impaneled to see if he was fit to stand trial. Despite his paranoid schizophrenia, it was decided that he was. He was found guilty in the Supreme Court and sentenced to life in prison. Gargasoulis was yet another example of the downside of multiculturalism. He said during his magistrate's court appearance, quote, did you know the Muslim faith is the correct faith according to the whole world? and I am not guilty? Again, it goes without saying that not all Muslim people are bad. Indeed, I've met some who love this country and their neighbours more than most people. But the emphasis on multiculturalism from our leaders is becoming a little laboured. It's never really been seriously discussed during any election campaign, yet it has become a cornerstone of our government and our society. Australia's diversity is a strength. India diversity is our strength. Uh, our uh, diversity is a strength. Our strength is our diversity. Our diversity is a strength. Our diversity is our strength. Diversity is our strength. Diversity is our strength. Our diversity is our strength. Diversity is our strength. Diversity doesn't have to be a weakness. It can be our greatest strength. The signs that all this strength is not as strong as it's cracked up to be are everywhere these days. Take the Notting Hill Carnival in London a couple of weeks ago, for example. It was marred again this year by hundreds of arrests for violence, including stabbings, and one man ran through the crowd waving a machete. This is what some of the festival goers got up to during the two days of music and partying. It's not exactly traditional or respectable English culture, but it's what has become acceptable these days. And here is a British imam explaining to his followers how to stone a woman to death 
while also protecting her dignity. Her that she is punished and she is stoned to death. And according to the Sharia again, when it comes to women, they must be there must be a, there must be a hole dug in the in the in the earth in the in the ground, and she must be covered up to the half of the body, so that her satter does not uh, uh, appear. That was recorded at a mosque in Birmingham, and two million pounds in grants from the government have since been withdrawn. Meanwhile, here's Victorian Premier Dan Andrews working the Muslim constituency during the state election last year. Finally, uh, we think it is important as part of an education process that everyone across our state knows about the works of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. It's very important that his teachings, his life, his journey is understood by so many people. Uh, that's why we'll provide a $500,000 grant to the Islamic Museum in partnership with the Board of Imams and also the Islamic Council of Victoria to develop a program to educate, to share those teachings, that wisdom. This is part of a comprehensive plan to do what matters. Uh, investing in our multiculturalism, supporting our multi-faith communities and acknowledging this central truth that Victoria's Muslim community are about family, they're about faith and they're about hard work. Generous, fantastic Victorians, and we need to stand with them, and we always. When was the last time you heard Dan talking about Christians like that? Again, there's nothing wrong with a demographic that focuses on family and community and hard work. But unless they share our culture as well, then all they do is add to our population. They don't make our culture stronger. The federal government will spend $100 million on multi multicultural services this financial year. That's not including the money spent resettling refugees or the money spent by state governments. Has anybody ever stopped to ask why this is necessary? Migrants used to come here because they were attracted to our culture, freedom and prosperity. Now we fork out more than $100 million a year so they don't assimilate. Where do you think all this will end up? Well, it will lead to what's happening right across the United States right now, and especially in New York. New York Mayor Eric Adams said last week that the sudden influx of illegal and incompatible immigrants is an unprecedented crisis. In my life, have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to? I don't see an ending to this. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. It wasn't long ago that Adams, like every politician in Australia, was an absolute champion of immigration and multiculturalism. But now he's saying that New York, arguably one of the greatest human achievements in history, a place where anything was once possible, is under existential threat thanks to illegal and incompatible immigration. How long before we start saying the same thing about our own cities? Melbourne, where crime is increasing as quickly as the shops are closing,
Doesn't seem far behind New York, to be honest. Well, a country that is founded on the disunity of multiculturalism is weak enough. But throw in a toxic debate about whether the descendants of the nomadic tribes that inhabited the place 230 years ago should have a special voice to parliament and might be owed billions of dollars in rent from the colonial interlopers, and you'd have to say that that nation is the equivalent of a nerdy kid walking around a public school playground asking bullies if they'd like a game of chess. As it happens, this region's main bully nation, China, is still actively marking out its territory right on our doorstep. With me to discuss this is retired United States Colonel Grant Newsham. Colonel Newsham is a former Marine who was the Reserve Head of Intelligence for the Marines in the Pacific and was a diplomat in Japan where he lived for more than 20 years. He is also the author of When China Attacks, which was published this year. Grant, welcome to the show. Well, glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Grant, firstly, China is establishing military bases all over the world, but most alarmingly for Australia, it is having considerable success in the Solomon Islands, which is only 2,000 kilometres from Queensland. Now, there was a US delegation at the Solomon Islands just three weeks ago, and they were snubbed. Grant, tell me, who was in this delegation and what happened? Well, the principal members were two US representatives. One was Congressman Neil Dunn from Florida and a representative, Amata Radawagan, from American Samoa. And they were on a sort of trip of the, through the Pacific. They actually came by Australia first, and then they split off from a larger delegation I went to Solomon Islands, and in advance, they had put in a request to meet with the Prime Minister, and that went through normal channels, and they were told, uh, you know, come at such and such day, at such and such time, and you'll meet somebody. And of course, sometimes Prime Ministers, you know, are busy, so that's how it goes. Uh, but they went there, and the time came and passed, and there was nobody to meet them. Uh, they didn't even put uh, uh, some other official, some officer, uh, they just stiffed them. And that is a faux pas. Let's put it mildly. It's not a faux pas. It was probably intentional. It just had to be. Now, so you're standing up representatives of the United States government and conscious decision, most likely, and suggest that the prime minister of Solomon Islands, Sogavare, uh, has chosen sides, so and it's the, not the United States. Yeah, well, I was going to say, what's the symbolism of this? But it's, it's not really that symbolic. It's a pretty much an outright statement, isn't it? I think you could take it that way. You just have to, uh, particularly in this case, there was plenty of advance notice, and you can always treat people politely. Uh, they just chose not to do it. Well, we'll get to the, the, the significance of that snubbing in a minute, but let's talk about the strategic significance of these islands. Now, Grant, this was proven during World War II when the Japanese took them and it was the, the Guadalcanal, the Battle of Guadalcanal, if I'm not mistaken, was the turning point of the war in the Pacific when the Japanese started to uh, be forced back to Japan. Um, but had they been taken by the Japanese, Australia would have been cut off from its main ally, the United States, across the Pacific. Now, does that 
strategic significance still apply today? Oh, definitely. Uh, geography doesn't change. And the Chinese have studied World War II very well. And they recognized the mistakes the Japanese made. And one of them was not getting into the Solomon Islands fast enough and not getting into uh, the, the Hebrides, uh, what Vanuatu and New Caledonia. Had they done that, the lines of communication, supply, the ability to conduct operations uh, would have been just cut. And that's from the United States to Australia. Would have made it much harder for the Americans actually to launch their counteroffensive. So the Chinese recognized the mistakes the Japanese made, and such is Chinese sense of superiority that they figured, well, of course the Japanese made mistakes, so we're so much smarter, we're not going to make the same ones. And sure enough, they are sort of checking the doors on just about every place in the Pacific, every island of consequence and even very little consequence. And they're seeing where they've got an opportunity, they're pushing, looking to see where there's uh, sort of receptiveness. And when they see an opportunity, they are taking it and they see it in the Solomons and they are just going all out. Well, they've built a major port in the Solomons, haven't they? How, how big is that port and how soon before they use it for their navy, do you think? Well, they haven't actually built the port yet, but there's a couple that are in the works. But the Solomons has good natural harbours. Uh, one of them, of course, is Tulagi, famous from World War II. It's just really across the Iron Bottom Sound from uh, Guadalcanal a bit. Um, and these, there's, these places could be very good sort of naval stations, now, even if it's not formally a base, but the ability to operate out of there, uh, this would let them handle all sorts of things and serve as a very nice staging base. In fact, a few years ago, I think it was around 2019, uh, the Chinese actually signed a deal with the government of Tulagi to basically lease the entire island to build a naval base. Uh, there was actually such a popular outcry that the Attorney General of Solomon Islands had to cancel the deal. Uh, but that was, shows you what the Chinese have in mind. And it's one step at a time, you keep pushing and you get your openings and take advantage of them. And the Solomons offer some say, good staging areas, good bases, both naval and air, air stations as well, uh, just as they did to the, the Japanese and just as the Americans uh, preempted the Japanese and after a, a very hard battle, hard campaign, were able to sort of take it themselves and go back on the offensive. I talked earlier in the show about the, the, the flaws or the fallacies of what we call multiculturalism. I don't think it makes us a stronger culture at all. The Solomon Islands are in fact a, a, a kind of an, a, a, an aggregation of tribes really, aren't they? There's a lot of different languages spoken across the archipelago and there's not necessarily a sort of unified culture or anything. Does that make them a, a more vulnerable to uh, sort of Chinese interference? Oh, it, it could. And in fact, it's surprising that in Solomon's, it's as you described, there are a number of ethnic groups, tribes as it is. Uh, the, the islands are very different, a lot of different languages. Uh, but there is a sense of, sort of nationhood, actually, more than you would suspect. And the Chinese have not really been able to play to that successfully, as far as I can tell. Uh, but what they have done effectively is what we would call proxy warfare, is you find your local yes-men, your, your toady, the guys you can, who will go on your payroll, uh, who see their interests as lying with China, and basically you, you pay them off. And they are able to exert a lot of influence on your behalf. Uh, but the, the tribal aspect isn't quite like you would think. But your original statement 
uh, about this notion of uh, tribalism, multiculturalism. My goodness, um, Yugoslavia would have been the happiest place on earth and not Disneyland if that was the case. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. but, but in, in Solomon Islands, I say the potential uh, for breaking things down on tribal lines is certainly there. And they did have uh, sort of troubles not all that long ago uh, that were largely ethnic, uh, ethnically based. There's a, a large island called Malaita, uh, just north of Guadalcanal. And then on Guadalcanal, there's basically a different ethnic group. And there was, tent, rival, there was actually fighting and violence based on that. And some of the other islands it was involved too. Uh, but there's talk of uh, that this was actually instigated by uh, certain people. And it isn't something that just brewed up, but rather it was stoked. And so that is always a game that can be played uh, there. But at the, for now, China is simply using their proxy uh, warfare very effectively, and they've got their guy in charge. Do you get the feeling that Australians are aware of how significant this threat is? I mean, you're an Australian now. You've been, you've been here for a while. Do, are we aware of how bad this is? I think there's people who do. I'm not sure they get listened to very often. Uh, I'm not being glib about it, and that's sort of, we have that same problem, but there's plenty of Australians who do understand it, understand the strategic importance of these islands. They understand that the dangers of China getting a foothold uh, in these places. Um, but I say, I don't know that they get listened to, and I don't know if there is a government strategy to deal with this. Uh, it's, it appears to be very well hidden. Uh, you know, I would note from an American perspective that we effectively outsourced our efforts in Solomon Islands to Australia for about 30 years. That probably wasn't the best move we ever made. Uh, I, you, you go there and you kind of wonder what, what exactly were they doing for all this time, but there was a sense, well, it, I think somebody even said, well, it's our patch. You know, we understand these people. Uh, well, that's sort of like Americans used to go down to Mexico and think that everyone loved us. And we understood how to deal with Mexicans. You know, you just give them some pesos. Uh, how wrong can you be? And so, so there are plenty of Australians who get it, and particularly people who've done business in Solomon Islands. They do. There's military types as well who do. There, there are people who do get it. But I'm not sure they get listened to. It's, yeah, I'm not sure just, they get listened to. Just an impression. To. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that Canberra understands it. I mean, I, I think a lot of uh, politicians just assume that as long as there's a bunch of Solomon Islanders playing in the local rugby league competition, that everything's fine. Now, China is setting up bases all over the world at the moment, but uh, uh, President Biden, US President Joe Biden, just said on the weekend that it is decreasingly likely that China will do anything aggressive now that its economy is in free fall. What do you think? Well, he, he may be right, but he may be wrong. Uh, personally, I, I wouldn't take that as a given. Anytime someone tells you that something definitely will not happen, you should probably expect it will. And once again, not being funny there, uh, but when you've seen that play out how many times, and, and look at what China has gotten themselves uh, into in terms of positioning. Uh, they have got a military that in certain circumstances could beat the US military. If they chose their spots, uh, they'd kill a whole lot of us and just might win if the fight is too close to the Chinese mainland. Uh, similarly, they've built up a military over the last 50 years, but particularly in the last 20, uh, that is capable of having a, a go at Taiwan and the Chinese communists just might think that they can get it. So it is a formidable military. Uh, they've, they reckon that they've learned their lessons from Ukraine. They've seen what these, the Russians, the peasants in suits did wrong, 
And the Chinese certainly aren't, they're you know, superior to the Russians, so they won't make those mistakes. So they just might think that Taiwan is ripe for the taking. They might see that there's so much chaos and confusion in the United States, particularly with an election coming up. Uh, they may look at this administration. Many of the people who are handling foreign affairs, China affairs, Asia affairs, are very familiar to the Chinese. Some of them have taken a lot of money from them in the past. And they may just see there's not enough backbone uh, in Washington, in the U.S., to risk nuclear war. And China just may go about it in a way that we don't quite expect. Uh, there's a number, I've probably heard a dozen good scenarios. They're all plausible. Uh, so, and everyone tends to think of their favorite one whenever they talk about it. So it doesn't have to be an all-out uh, assault on Taiwan. It could be. Uh, but there's a, a range of options from taking a smaller Taiwanese island, uh, putting on a blockade, and telling the Americans to stand back. This, this is a domestic Chinese matter. If you weigh in, it's war. And you just might get an administration that crawls under the, the desk in the Oval Office. Uh, so there's different ways this could play out. But I wouldn't suggest that uh, because Xi Jinping and China have some problems at the moment, that this makes them less, less frightening. As some might even say, it encourages them uh, to roll the dice. And also, it's a good distraction, particularly if you play to nationalism and resentments. Well, speaking of nationalism and culture, for that matter, I mean, one of the ways that, that China seems to be already waging this war is on a cultural level. I mean, for example, TikTok, I'd argue, has, is turning an entire generation of Western young minds into uh, mashed potato. I mean, you know, you can't use TikTok if you're a young person in China, but uh, seems like every young person in the West is addicted to staring at, um, you know, idiotic things on TikTok. At, at what level do you think, or how, how uh, enthusiastically is China waging a cultural war on the West? Oh, with uh, gusto? I think brio is a word you don't hear much, but they are going after it. And it's a cognitive war, psychological war. You're trying to influence people. And one of the advantages of social media is that you have got people glued to their devices. Say if it's a written propaganda, say a newspaper, you have to try and attract somebody to it. But here you've got people looking at these apps, at their devices, and you can pump them the information you want. And that is a, just a totalitarian's dream. Uh, but also, when you look at the TikTok story, you remember the uh, U.S. Congress called in the CEO of TikTok not too long ago, and it was funny. It was fun in its own right to see the guy see if he was going to say anything that was true. He didn't. But the real important thing is you look behind him, and there was a phalanx of American lawyers and lobbyists, all these white guys lined up mostly, uh, who were on the Chinese payroll, ready to do the Chinese Communist Party's bidding. And that plays itself out over and over and over in the United States. Uh, whenever there's some effort to try to crack down on China, their friends, uh, the white shoe law firms, all of Wall Street, the US-China Business Council, they are all in, they, you know, you know, lobbying like mad, calling up the White House, saying, don't do this. And China has their friends. These are effectively proxies. It's really just a different variation, a version of what's going on uh, in the Solomon Islands. And the Chinese have been wildly successful. Well, just, just, just like we, we are making ourselves weak on so many fronts without before a bullet has even been, uh, been fired. Now, let's talk about Apple, uh, Grant, because 
the Apple Corporation. Uh, China has just placed a ban on Apple products. Tell me about your your opinion on companies that go to China thinking that it's some sort of uh, gold mine. All you've got to do is get on with the Communist Party and uh, and the billions will roll in. What hap- what really happens, Grant? Oh, when you're what you're watching is the ancient Greeks probably knew this very well. They just didn't know about America. But when an American smells money, uh, generally speaking, he'll perform like a sea lion at Sea World who thinks he's going to get a mackerel snack. Uh, and what you saw with companies like, like Apple, uh, and every country that, company that goes in there, it's this lure of making a ton of money in China, this belief that it's such a giant market that you just have to be there, and fabulous wealth. And what happens is every company that goes there is only there at the sufferance of the Chinese Communist Party. You will only last as long as they will let you last. You will only be as successful as they will let you be. And that applies to all of them. And the idea is to bring you in, suck you dry of your technology, your know-how, replace you with a Chinese company. Uh, I uh, used to work for Motorola, which used to be in the day, was one of America's best companies. They went into China in the late 80s and did everything just right. Uh, Everything was right. And they committed suicide. What they did is they uh, built up their competition that in short order was building products about as good as theirs. Uh, and a lot cheaper, and it, Motorola doesn't exist today, and what is left is Chinese-owned. So it was no surprise that Apple, regardless of its size and importance, uh, it was just there as long as it was useful to the Chinese Communist Party. And they've still got a ways to go, but it's going to be a, a very lingering, sort of painful uh, death for them. And, and even Elon Musk, you know, I no doubt he thinks that the Chinese like him more than anyone else. No, he's going to come short up there in there as well. And that is simply the nature of that market. It's surprising that the CEOs of these companies don't get sued about twice a day by their shareholders for putting their money at risk. If, say, the state of, say, Queensland or North Carolina in America, if it had a similar business environment, nobody would do business there. But because it's China, Westerners just go insane. Uh, it's a phenomenon that is it's hard to explain. Uh, but it is certainly uh, a phenomenon, and it is the real thing. How do you think Elon Musk is going to uh, come a cropper, as we say in Australia, in China? Well, eventually they're going to uh, have about six, a dozen rivals to to Tesla. Uh, They're going to make life difficult for him. It's going to be hard for them to uh, do business, bring bring materials in. They're going to be accused of all sorts of violations of Chinese law. Uh, things that need investigation. And it's just going to get harder and harder. And whatever uh, intellectual property the Chinese haven't gotten yet, uh, they'll steal the rest of it. Once you get into that, in that market, uh, you might as well just hand the stuff over. Uh, you will lose it all. And it may take a while. And you're going to hear for a long time, well, we're making a ton of money there. Well, the question is, yeah, for how long? And mm-hmm. for many West, for many businessmen, executives, it's like a game of Russian, Russian roulette or musical chairs. You just want to be there long enough to cut some deal, to get a bonus, and go on to your next assignment. And then whatever's coming, that's somebody else's problem. But it is absolutely predictable what happens to you when you go into China. Well, you say it's a matter. Of, it's just a matter of how long. Your book is called When China Attacks. When is it going to be, Grant? Uh, 
the book's title is actually a little bit deceptive because um, I point out that they already have and they've been attacking us for 30 years at least. A lot of the wars, it, well, most, it is not a shooting war yet. And from a Chinese perspective, they see psychological warfare, chemical warfare, uh, drug warfare, uh, commercial warfare, financial warfare. These are all warfares. And the shooting part only comes if you haven't been successful at the other ones. What you're doing is you're weakening your enemy. And they have been at this for 30 years. You know, I mentioned my experiences in the commercial uh, world as well. Uh, but also the one that really is just breathtaking and get really is disheartening is their use of drug warfare. We'd call it chemical warfare, and that is the fentanyl assault on the United States. You know, last year, 75,000, about 70,000 Americans died from that drug, all of which comes from China originally, and China could stop it. They don't want to. And so you're, they're taking several divisions of Americans off the battlefield even before the shooting starts. So I do cover the, the so-called kinetic warfare, the shooting war, and how that would play out. But what I'm getting at is that all of these things are being done to the United States, and not just to us, but to the other free nations. And, and Australia actually kind of woke up first uh, before the Americans did. And the, I'm not sure they're going to stay awake, but certainly Ameri Australia showed what could be done. Uh, and they were an extremist, and I'm not sure they're still not, but, uh, but at least they, they showed what could be done. The Americans uh, are waking up, they're doing better at it, uh, but at the same time, they've, China's got their friends uh, who want to keep us asleep. Yeah, and Australia's got its friends across the Pacific, and we will remain in touch as long as China doesn't take the Solomon Islands. Oh. Colonel Grant Newsham, thank you so much for your time. Sure, glad to be here. That's retired US Colonel Grant Newsham and author of When China Attacks. Introducing the co-host of Parting Shots, the weekly news podcast from ADH. Well, obviously it's a very exciting opportunity for Fred. He's been on my back for years to do this with him. So in the end, I just said yes. Yeah, Ning told me about this idea a couple of weeks ago and I thought, couldn't I do one with Alan Jones instead? You couldn't have two more very different guys. Fred's just the knockabout surfy, catches a wave, rides with it. I'm more, bring a bit more intellectual depth to it. Just get below the surface of each issue. Oh, yeah, Nick is so annoying. Just because he's got a weekly column in The Australian, he thinks he knows everything. I worry about the amount of time that Fred spends out in the surf. You know, he's inclined to get a little bit of water on the brain. Oh, 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 hang on. It says on this surf forecast app that the swell's picking up this afternoon. Can we finish this tomorrow? Well, obviously, Fred, Fred asked me to host it. He's... You know, he's a great Aussie larrikin, but I, I guess he lacks the, the gravitas that you bring to it as a former newspaper editor. Of course, I only agreed to do the podcast because the boss said I could be the host. I mean, I respect Nick and everything, but you can't have a pommy host of an Australian news podcast, can you? Search Spotify for parting shots. The podcast by Fred Paul and Nick Cater. Are you looking for the best books to buy, but can't be bothered searching for them in increasingly woke bookshops? Visit the ADH website, click on the store, and check out the latest and some collectible old books by such authors as 
Brendan O'Neill, Ian Plymer, Jared Henderson, Ian Hancock, and myself, David Flint. These are some of the sharpest writers applying common sense to the great debates of our time, from the gender wars, the attack on religion, and the new racism of the Aboriginal lobby. All the information you need to get through these crazy times at store.adh.tv. And now for a change of pace, you might recall this dramatic moment from the Women's World Cup final in Sydney last month. This is Spanish Football Federation Chief Luis Rubiales embracing and forcefully kissing player Jenny Hermoso as she received her trophy for winning the tournament, the World Cup tournament. It's clearly over the top, but these are Spaniards here. And it wasn't long ago that we thought of them as unnaturally passionate people. And initially, even Hermoso seemed to acknowledge this. On the next day, as the world's media got all indignant about this outward exhibition of affection, Hermoso herself said, quote, It was a totally spontaneous mutual gesture because of the immense joy that winning a World Cup brings. The President and I have a great relationship, his behaviour with all of us has been outstanding, and it was a natural gesture of affection and gratitude." Unquote. So move along, nothing to see here then. But that's not how these things end in these enlightened times, and Hermoso soon changed her mind and filed a criminal complaint against Rubiales last week, adding that she and her family were initially under pressure from the men of the Federation to dismiss this incident. This was followed by a Spanish prosecutor filing a complaint last Friday that the kiss was a sexual assault and the complaint has been lodged in the nation's high court. Under immense pressure also from FIFA, Rubiales resigned on the weekend after defending his position for weeks. Is this all an overreaction? To help me answer that question, I've got Holly Lawford-Smith, a feminist academic and, uh, from Melbourne University and passionate advocate for the defence of women's rights. Holly, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. Holly, in your opinion, which one of Hermoso's responses is the more authentic one? The initial dismissal of it or her filing a criminal complaint? Uh, authentic is an interesting question. Um, so I don't think it's surprising that it would take some time to process a moment like that. So it doesn't seem shocking to me that her story has changed over time. I think there would be a great urge in a moment like that to kind of dismiss and minimise and focus on the, the joy and the celebration and also to not want to feel disrespected uh, by someone who is your, your coach or in a sort of senior position relative to you. Um, so, yeah, I don't find it surprising that 
the feelings or the comments or statements that she made publicly or to the press changed over the course of the the couple of weeks um, and maybe even that they changed in response to the public conversation, right, with further considerations coming to light. That doesn't mean she necessarily feels assaulted or traumatised, but it might just mean that she thinks it is overall the right thing to do um, to to bring this kind of charge, um, to acknowledge that this was some form of uh, uh, sexual assault, so within the the remit of the sexual assault legal category, even if at the very, very kind of like most light end of that category. Well, it's interesting that you analyse the initial response as her not wanting to be seen as having been disrespected. That's a that's something that you know someone someone like me can't begin. Yeah, I can't begin to see it that way. I mean, Jordan Peterson often talks about how women are by nature more agreeable, and that would have been her instinctive response at the time. Like, just be agreeable. Don't don't cause any trouble. Is it? Would that been a factor as well? As well. Absolutely. But if you think about some, I mean, I think a kiss on the mouth is pretty intimate, but if you think about anything else, like in a moment of joy, he grabs a handful of her butt, right? Or in a moment of joy, you know, there's various ways he could have touched her or slid his hand down the side of her waist, anything like that, where, yeah, she's kind of agreeable. She just wants to be happy and celebrate the moment. She trusts him. They've got a long relationship. Uh, Yeah, I think you would have that impulse to to minimise or dismiss or just be like, let's not focus on that, let's focus on this amazing triumph and I don't want to be a victim, I want to be a a celebrated female athlete. Like, so, yeah, to me it's really comprehensible that she, she reacted that way initially and that it took some time to be like, hold on, like him feeling the right to do that with me in public, like I'm some object that you can just grab and express your affection onto, uh, that you end up feeling more and more like uncomfortable with that the more you think about it. Yeah, I'd have to say there's some credence to the fact, to, to the claim that she was pressured because when I reread that quote, her initial quote, it's got a lot of press release qualities to it. It's almost too good to have been, yeah. uh, to have been written by herself, don't you think? Yeah, and I just read something. So there's an article about this in Quillette that I could not disagree with more strongly, but there was a line in that saying it was quoting her, talking to her teammates, I think right after. And the quote is in Spanish but translated, saying that the teammate asked her and she said, I didn't like it. She was laughing. So if this article is to be trusted, she was laughing, but she also said, uh, yeah, I didn't like it. Yeah, so see, these again, are the... Again, <laughs> makes sense to me. Well, these are the... I'm co- happy it happened, but... <laughs> This is the complex. This is the complex nature of female behaviour that some men will never understand, <laughs> at the risk of sounding old-fashioned. But anyway, look, to, Holly, to, just to play devil's advocate again, these people, these two people, had been through a long campaign together. Now, nobody outside that elite echelon of sport knows what it's like to achieve that kind of success. That. Isn't it forgivable that passion could override the senses at a time like that? I mean, we won't, we just don't understand. We don't. We will never know what it's like to be in that situation. 
Look, I think it depends, right? If you could really make the case to persuade me that this was just cultural and it could have just as easily been that she grabbed the nearest man or whoever her sexual orientation is oriented toward, grabbed their face and kissed them or grabbed a handful of their butt or whatever it is we're, we're talking about. But I don't think it is right. I think it's going to be like Spanish machismo, uh, that sort of culture. It's going to it's going to have this angle where like, yeah, it's men who are passionate in this kind of sexualized way. And I don't think we should be making excuses for men's treatment of women if that's the culture, if it's a, if it's a sex differentiated culture, because then it's him actually kind of exploiting this amazing moment that should have had her in the spotlight to express his joy and passion in a way that actually like takes something away from her. Well, that's a very good point. And yes, he did seem to take this. I mean, that wouldn't, I mean, you know, when the Queen used to present the, the FA Cup to the winner of the FA Cup, it was always, here's your cup and she'd stand back and, the, and it would be the winner of the, of the FA Cup who, who got all the adulation. But you're right. He really was intruding on her moment, <laughs> which is why, I mean, my next question was going to be, look, it's just a kiss. I mean, what's the fuss? I mean, surely it was unwelcome and it was over the top. But yeah. it, it, it wasn't violent or anything. But perhaps you've answered that already. I mean, rather than just a kiss, he was just intruding on what was really her moment of glory. Yeah, and I also think maybe a lot of the public response to this kind of just a kiss thought, like it has the same flavor as, um, do you remember the response to like Brock Turner? I think he he raped a girl in college and then a lot of the commentary was like, oh, his his whole future is destroyed because of a few minutes of, a few minutes of mistake. And it's like, that mistake is a rape and it ruined a woman's life, right? And I'm not saying a kiss is anywhere in the league of a rape, but it's like, are we having empathy for his, like the coach's loss of a job because he did something that's actually technically illegal and morally at least disrespectful, if not worse? Or are we going to have empathy for her, someone, again, who should have been being celebrated and had that kind of moment stolen from her yeah, because of okay. his behaviour? I want to empathise with her. Well, I think the world does. You know, I mean, she is certainly the hero out of this story. He's the villain. He's just lost his job. Now, yeah. the, the, the response from a lot of men, you know, who, the majority of men have never committed a sexual assault and never would and would in fact rush to the defence of a woman who was being sexual, sexually assaulted. Now, all us blokes are sitting back going, oh, this guy's lost his job, it's probably his dream job. Uh, for yeah. one moment of uh, of indiscretion, <laughs> is this is this is this well sorry, well, but is this You're emblematic of the, the right war against <laughs> men? There there is a war against men, and is this emblematic of it? Look, I don't think there's a war against men, but I think there's certainly a war against misogyny. There's a war against sexual entitlement. There's a huge feminist push to make men understand that women are not their property and not objects for them to grab when they feel like it. Um, and that, I think that's a good war. Like I, I like that war. And I think it's symbolic that this move has been made against him in the public sphere because it sends a very strong expressive message to the people of Spain that that's not something that you can do and, and globally as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, How one would you thing that's maybe interesting question of whether it's disproportionate right so I think people might feel god it was just a kiss but he's losing this amazing career but again on that point I sort of think like I said earlier there are 
crime categories. And then there are, of course, the most serious and the least serious within that category. So, you know, if it's illegal to perpetrate theft, but you just steal a packet of chewing gum, you still did something illegal and people still might want to react to the morality of your breaking the law in that way. And I think people are reacting to this, like it's in the category of sexual assault, even if it's at this kind of like soft end. But is losing his job the, the appropriate punishment? Well, just to make a comparison, I can lose my job at Unimalb for, for violating the law. And the law in Victoria is about to introduce vilification offences, which could count as ridiculing people on the basis of gender identity. Some oh, people think well. my whole research project does that. So if, if his job requires him to obey the law and be a kind of role model and representative, and he has technically broken the law, maybe yes. Well, let's talk about those vilification laws because that is your other, uh, you know, sort of raison d'etre and you are very central <laughs> to it. Um, you've just come back from Canberra where you, uh, you were on ADH earlier today as part of a Let Women yeah. Speak forum at Parliament House. How did it go? It went great, yeah. So there were nine uh, women on the panel speaking about the various ways that their advocacy uh, on women's sex-based rights um, have landed them in, in hot water or in difficult situations. And we had a number of um, parliamentarians there. Catherine Deves was hosting. Um, yeah, it was great. It was great to get everyone together in the same room. Um, there was a small protest outside. I'm told there were about 30 people there uh, trying to send a message of getting turfs out of Canberra. Um, <laughs> and obviously they did, they did not succeed. <laughs> <laughs> so no, it was great. It went it went really well. Yeah. Yeah. The defining uh, the defining characteristic of of that group that you were among this morning is just how diverse they are. They've they've got you and uh, people from right across the political spectrum. I mean, I'd say you're slightly left of centre, and uh, and some of the others were to the right. And uh, the one thing yeah. they have in common is an absolute adherence to the rights of women to just be women and not be uh, not have their spaces invaded by men who think they are. Um, Holly Lawford-Smith, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That's Holly Lawford-Smith, author of Sex Matters, the sensational new collection of essays about human rights, gender and gender identity. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to see more ADH content, have a look around our website or app for some of the best commentary in the nation from people like Alan Jones, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, Dave Pillow, and more. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there is no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again next Monday at seven o'clock. Good night.